Thank you very much. And uh, very hospitable environment here at the Holy Cross. I appreciate that very much. Since December 2007, uh, the United States and the world economy has been in the deepest and longest recession since the Great Depression. Probably the nadir, the low point of this, uh, of this downturn uh, was probably in October, November in 2008. Lehman Brothers failed and AIG had to be rescued and there was, a, there was a huge panic in the whole financial system of the world and there was a big meltdown. And of course, when the house is on fire, the priority is to put out the fire. And it's only pretty recently, uh, January of this year, 2009, when serious efforts are now beginning to think very seriously about the question of, of what caused this, uh, this terrible recession and what can we do to prevent future recessions. So there's, in Ernst, there's a lot of movement in Congress and Federal Reserve to regulate financial overhaul of the financial system and, and to give uh, consumers much better disclosure in the mortgage market and, and to regulate the credit card industry, etc. But this is just very recent vintage, like January 2009. The focus of my talk tonight is, from a Jewish law standpoint, what we should do to prevent the next great depression. Now, there has been, I think, I would like to cite three different works among very prominent economists analyzing like, what happened, why did we get, how did we get into this terrible situation. I mean, probably uh, the biggest authority in the housing market, Robert Schiller of Yale University, he, he talks about a social contagion, that, that there was a bubble in the housing market, and Alan Greenspan, chairman of the Fed, he said that there can't really be a bubble in the housing market because uh, the characteristic of a bubble was only when someone could, there has to be a very, very uh, frantic trading, people buying stocks and commodities. But how could there be a bubble in the housing industry? People buy a home to live in the home, and there's considerable transaction costs involved in uh, selling a home and getting into another apartment. It's a very big hassle. Anyone that moved knows this. So really, people buy a home to live in the home, and, and, and the, the um, home prices start to skyrocket. People are very happy, but not, that doesn't make them want to sell their home and, and, um, and buy another home. So he, he really played a big role, such a uh, leader in, in the financial community as uh, Alan Greenspan, that they can't be a bubble. So Schill builds on that. He says, well, there's a contagion. That people, that, and that's how he explains all the um, mistakes and that were made in the subprime mortgage market. And in his whole book that he wrote about, I, don't, I would challenge you to find the word moral failure. I don't think you would find it once. Same thing goes for uh, Richard Posner, who's a leading scholar in the field of economics and law. He wrote also a book on the recession, and you will not find in the word moral failure in his book either. And in fact, what he talks about is that, that in retrospect, it seems that there was a lot of excessive risk-taking that took place, but at the time, it seemed to be the right thing to do. That's really the major thesis. And, and perhaps some of you read three, four weeks ago, Paul Krugman, who is a Nobel laureate and op-ed uh, writer for the New York Times. He wrote a, a long article in the, in, the, in the Sunday New York Times, essentially saying that same thing, but, but people were relying on mathematical models, that the market efficiency theory, 
and, and everything seemed to be fit in place. And again, in retrospect, we should not have relied so much on mathematical mo models and the belief that the financial system is, is really operating very efficiently. But again, you will not find the word moral failure at all in his analysis either. So we have three major economists. Now, I would like to suggest that, that there was major moral, moral failure and, uh, in, in, in the ground zero of this recession, which is the subprime mortgage market. And, and I would, would like to concentrate on one financial innovation, which is probably the greatest financial innovation of the 21st century. This is called the securitization process. So we just concentrate on that, and, and, and we'll see that it has a two-sided coin. And one, one side, it, it, it brings about a tremendous opportunity to spread risk globally and to, to bring about financing of, that is a constant source of replenishing and it could result in a, in a tremendous, a huge expansion uh, in, 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 the, in the housing industry. And this other side of the coin is that it more immediately generates tremendous number of moral dilemmas for all the players in the subprime mortgage market. And what, let me just explain briefly what securitization means. Not such a long time ago, you know, like, say before 1992. Uh, if someone wants to take out a mortgage, you dealt with one entity, one institution. You dealt with, 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 the, um, with a bank, and th this bank would um, negotiate with, with you the mortgage, and they would really want to make sure that you really have the ability to meet the monthly installments. And they would say, let's look at the loan-to-value ratio, like what is the value of this home and what's the loan. They wouldn't allow, allow this ratio to exceed 80%. And they would want to see... Proof of earnings from where you, that you, have a, you actually do have a job and what your earnings are. And, and if they were still not satisfied, they would insist upon insurance, that you should buy insurance in case that you would fail to meet the payments. And if you were late, let's say, in one of your payments, you would get a letter from the same bank that originated the loan. You're just dealing with one entity. And if, uh, God forbid, you, know, you were delinquent for two or three months, you start getting foreclosure notices, the same entity... You're just dealing with one entity. And that's how everyone before 1992, that's the way things were. But then we have the financial innovation called securitization, which atomizes the whole process of um, mortgage origination. And, and how does it work? We have different players. There could, there could be thousands of them around the country, loan originators, mortgage originators. They will originate a mortgage. And this company, as soon as they originate the mortgage, they will sell it to someone else, get rid of it, and of course, at a profit. And that <laughs> there will be an entity which we could call loan aggregator, that they will buy these uh, loan originations from many, many sources, and they would have a whole big bundle of them. Then you get, you know, we have the next player comes in, into, into, into visibility, and that is the securitizer, the, the person the entity that will buy the big bundle of mortgages. And they're all subprime mortgages, and they will make a bond out of it, a combination bond equity, and they will solicit the public to buy different tranches in this bond. And there will, there will be uh, senior tranches and junior tranches, depending upon the risk that you want to take, that if you want to take a bigger risk, 
So what do I mean by bigger risks? That what's, what are these bundle of subprime mortgages? That they are all originated from people who are, have impaired credit. And somehow the whole is supposed to be greater than some of the parts, which we'll come in and explain in a minute. But the securitizer, uh, we'll see how they convince people to buy. You're all intelligent people here, and you would wonder, why would somebody want to buy a bundle, have a, an entitlement for income, for principal and interest of mortgages that are all subprime, all from people of, of impaired credit that have the uh, FICO scores of less than 620. Now, they have a terrible credit history, and they don't, some of them don't have jobs, and a lot of these loans are called ninja loans, that they have no income, no jobs, no assets. People give them loans also. And some of them were just uh, income, stated income. You don't have to prove anything. That's, that's, that's the characters we're dealing with in this big bundle of subprime mortgages. And they say, they say well, you know, we're gonna want, you want an entitlement to some interest principle of this, this bundle? How do they convince people to, to actually buy the, these bonds? So they said, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts because we have two features to tell you about. One is, we call it a shock absorber, that we are, will retain 5% equity in these bonds. So in case there is a hit, in other words, there is a bigger default rate than, than predicted and there's non-payment, the first people to take a hit will be us, the one that issues the bond. Happens to be, they don't tell you, they only have 5% of the bonds, but they, they, they will take the first hit. They don't say, then, then there are junior tranches, people that are very risk, uh, adventurous people, very adventurous people, they, they will take the next hit in case we have to go further into the investors and because there's, there's a big default rate. And you, you could be a senior tranche holder and you're going to take the third hit or the fourth hit, you're, you're very safe. So the first idea is shock absorbers. Second is we have what we call credit enhancements, so this nice financial instrument known as the collateral debt obligation, and which entitles you to interest or principal from this whole bundle of subprime mortgages. And what, what do they mean by credit enhancement? They say that, you know, don't worry that there'll be default because we have bought insurance against default. We have bought what is called credit default swaps, very fancy name, and this is a contract with someone. We, we pay a premium to an entity such as a great company, AIG, you know, the biggest insurance company in the world. Don't worry. Nothing could go wrong. In case there's default, they will make good on it. We're paying premiums for that purpose, that in case something happens that unexpected, we have this giant company, world-renowned company, AIG. So the two features that make the whole greater than the part. There is shock absorbers and there is credit enhancement. But they didn't tell anyone at all the uh, credit default swap market is a totally unregulated market, which means that the entity that's promising to make good, if there's default, we're paying them premium, if they want to, they can sell their obligation to someone else. And no one even knows who that someone else is. AIG could sell to someone else. Really, they didn't disclose properly. So we have... The securitizer, we would say that and from the standpoint of Jewish law, they really did not give proper disclosure. They, they should have told people what about the shock absorbers, 5%, and they should have said credit enhancement, they should have told the people it's an unregulated market. But most important of all, 
In Jewish law, you ha- it's, the onus is on the seller to reveal to the buyer all the flaws that unless it's something that is a face-to-face transaction when the floor is like selling an animal and there's a defect, it's visible to, to the naked eye, you have to reveal, you have to disclose. The onus is on the seller to, to disclose all the different defects of the product. And what they should have told them most of all is that the profitability of your investment depends upon housing prices. If housing prices start to go down, you're in big trouble. That's the most basic thing to tell an investor, that that's the risk. The risk is that your investment is tied to the housing prices. And really, you can really distract the investor if you don't tell them that. Why? Because the credit rating agencies, they, were very, they helped the securitizer come up, concoct this type of security, which was called the collateral debt obligation. And they said and they, they're the ones that came up with the ideas of, of shock absorbers and credit enhancements. And they gave them a triple-A rating for 80% of the tranches. So an investor could easily be distracted and say, what could go wrong? There's a triple-A rating that I got from Standard & Poor's or Fitch Financials, Standard & Poor's. So, but, but from the standpoint of Jewish law, you really have to tell people or disclose to them the hidden defects of product that you're selling. And you have to tell them, which means the modern marketplace, we're not dealing with animals. If you look at the code of law in Jewish law, you, they, everything deals with animals. It's written in the 1500s. You translate in the modern society, what is a defect? Risk. You have to, you have to explain the risk. And, 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 and essentially, you have to tell people that your investment depends upon housing prices. And they would have to really make it concrete, say that you can see what has happening with housing prices. Just follow the Standard & Poor, K. Schiller Price Index of Homes they, for 20 me- metropolitan areas. Follow it. If that's going down, you should know that you're in trouble. That's how you know how it's the housing price is actually behaving. There is in existence an actual index that does this. And then you can look at the ABX index, which is showing what's happening to the premiums of the credit default swaps. Uh, are they paying more or less if, if there's a greater risk of default? then people who pay the premiums have to pay a higher premium. So that index tells you what's happening. Also, is a good indication what's happening to housing prices. And most important of all, as I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the idea of the price-earnings ratio that a lot of people use as investors in the stock market. So there's an equivalent thing in the housing market. It's called the price-rental ratio. So the, the bigger that ratio is, the bigger that number is, it tells you that really... It's not, it's not a good idea to buy a home. You might as well rent a home. So uh, this index is uh, more than 25 years. People are tracking it. And for, for, for a quarter of a century, this ratio was t- it ranged from 12.5 to 16.5. But when the housing bubble started, uh, and uh, Mark Zandi, expert in this area, he says it's, J- it's July 2003. That's when the housing bubble started. Then it was already 18. And when the housing bubble came to, to a peak, and saw it, everything started to crash, which was April 2006, it was 24. So if you look historically what the price-rent um, ratio was, 12.5 to 16.5, so you're seeing that that's a very strong indication that the housing prices are far, far out of whack because when it goes much higher than the historical ratio of 12.5 to 16.4, it goes to 18, goes up to 24, 
you know that there's something wrong here, that people don't think it's a good idea to buy a house. They might as well rent a home. Well, I would say moral failure, one of the people, the big moral failures is the securitizer, failing to properly disclose the defect in his product, which is known as collateral debt obligation. And relatedly, the credit rating agencies, which helped a lot to make this, they were also remiss in making disclosure. They give a triple A rating. It's just like a professor of yours would come, gives a student an A, and he would not, he would say, like, what, why are you giving this fellow an A and the other one a C? None of the papers, there's comments, none of them. Everybody, this one gets an A, this one gets a C, this one gets an F. So would anybody, anybody be satisfied? Like, why are you giving this guy an A and me an F? What, what's, where's the comments? So if you want to give a triple A rating to someone, why don't you explain it? What, on what basis do you get triple A? And when you start explaining what, what it's based on, and, and you tell them, you know, what, the whole is greater than the part. I, I admit that it's a, it's a bundle of uh, subprime mortgages where every individual mortgager is uh, at risk. Someone has a very impaired credit. But I'm going to tell, I'm going to convince you that uh, the whole is greater than some of the parts. And I'll tell you all about the credit enhancements, and I'll tell you about the shock absorbers. Once you start explaining to everybody what it's all about, how you get... The, even the average investor will say, this is baloney, this is garbage, this whole thing. What, where's the triple A? Where does it come from? Where, 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 it's not, so the credit rating agencies were also guilty of not making proper disclosure. Now, because of this atomization of the whole uh, mortgage lending process, that you have moral dilemmas that every single player is faced with when you're dealing with the originator of the mortgage. Does he have any incentive to make proper disclosure of all the risks. Like, for example, the 228 mortgage, say you would call a teaser mortgage. The first two years, you pay the same price you pay in the tenement. You say, that's what you're going to pay. It's a, why it's called a teaser rate. Then, after that, things skyrocket. Just read the fine print. You'll find all about it. You know. Ask your lawyer. He'll explain the whole thing to you. So when, when, we, when you're dealing with an originator, he really, and, and there's something else we have to keep in mind that the subprime mortgage market, first of all, is gigantic. It's $2.5 trillion, and the GDP is $14 trillion. So that is really a very nice, hard percentage of the whole gross domestic product. And that's, that's something that if there's something terribly wrong there, if that, there's bankruptcies there, and that ramifies tremendously. So we're dealing with that every single player in this atomization process really failed there was a moral failure. The originators, they didn't disclose what they should have disclosed, especially when they're pushing the mortgage on the, on the person. And they know that this applicant would not qualify in the, in the prime mortgage market at much more favorable terms. In other words, they would, they would not get a mortgage in the conventional mortgage market. So you're going to even ask the person to make tougher requirements, higher interest rates, and other kinds of... Of, of clauses like prepayment penalties and all kinds of things like that. So it's really giving someone very ill-suited advice. If you are going after the person as opposed to him coming to you, then you have an obligation to give him proper advice because that's you're, you're telling him, I want you to take out this subprime mortgage. It's good for you. It's not good for you. This is something that is ill-suited advice. It, it, it violates that principle by not telling the person that, that, that you know, from the, from the FICO score, it seems that information I have about you, you can't possibly meet these payments. That's what they, the originator should have t told all these, uh, these, these customers.
but they did not tell them that. And then you have to illustrate a really a, someone that's squeezed, that's pressured to be acting in, in, in a morally unacceptable way is the appraisers. You know, the appraisers. That you have to everything down on paper that this is a mortgage that will work, that there's no risk involved. So a key role is played by the appraiser. He comes and says that the equity in this home is is, is of six hundred thousand dollars. That's what he's going to say. That according to my my assessment. And the mortgage is only five hundred thousand dollars. So great, you know, this this is a good good deal for the bankers to get into. Broker pierces on to the banker, but such inflated values. The appraiser is one of the biggest abusers. This whole system they gave inflated values, and you say, why do they do that? Shouldn't there be a confluence of of interest between the borrower and the lender? The both of them they don't want to over assess the value of the homes. They don't want inflated assessments because they're both going to be big losers. The, the, the mortgager, the borrower, is going to be forced to, to default and, 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 and be evicted from his home. He doesn't want that. And the lender is going to, not going to get payment. He's going to be a failed asset. They don't want it. So you would think that both of them would, the other way around, they would pressure the assessors to make a fair market value. But they, that doesn't happen because the, uh, the originator of the loan, what does he do with the loan right away? He sells it to someone else, it's, it's to, to the loan aggregator. So they don't really think that this is their problem, that there will be a failure to pay because it will be someone else's problem. They have escaped already by selling the loan to someone else, to the, to the aggregator. So the appraisers really who acted improperly. They gave assessments that they knew were not correct, they were over-assessments, so this is simply a false type of assessments, and this is, was very, very prevalent, and so that's another, another failure. So when we look at, at, at another aspect of the um, subprime mortgage market, we, there are many uh, experts, uh, analysts of this uh, mortgage market, they like to include what is called the Alt-A mortgages as well, that's part, there was a huge amount of default in that sector. Also. And what is Alt-A? It is people who have very good credit standing. Their FICO scores are very hard, could even be 800. But they don't have any proof documentation of their income. So, like, so, so a lot of these people, they didn't qualify for the prime mortgage. So the subprime mortgage was very happy to take them. And so what, what they, people would say, they just state their income and they say, so then the, there's a, the uh, standard joke that took place in this thing is that some of the mortgage broker is standing by his computer and he's clacking away. And he says, you know, uh, if you would have another $5,000 of income last year, you could qualify for a, a cut of a half a percentage point. So the fellow says, oh, come to think of it, I did have another job last year. All of a sudden he remembers he had another job last year. When you can get a mortgage based on stated income without document, as it was in the olden times, as I mentioned, that they were very tight, you had to prove your income. So that's an incentive to lie. And there is a, a research institute known as the Mortgage Asset Research Institute. They have done research reporting to Congress, and they found that in state incomes that there is 60% exaggeration of, 60% uh, of the people exaggerate 60% and even more. So there's, there's a tremendous amount of exaggeration of income when you don't have to prove it. So the idea of offering someone a mortgage without asking him proof that he can afford to pay is really giving this person an incentive to lie. 
And this is also, uh, in Jewish law, this is a, a very big um, a moral failure when you put someone in such a situation, when you tempt that person to lie. And a, a model of that is, the Talmud mentions that 2,000 years ago, mentions that no one should lend someone money without the benefit of witnesses. Why? Because you are planting in this fellow, the borrower's mind and heart, to plot to say the loan never took place. There are no witnesses. And this person could be a very righteous person. We don't care who he is. That, and in fact, it, it would even be a case of somebody who's a, as a righteous person, people who say, well, probably the one that's telling the truth is the borrower, although he's lying, and the lender, they would curse you out. So, you know, you, I did him a favor. I lend the money. And I end up, everybody's cursing me. So this is, this is also part, part of, the, of the moral dilemma. So it seems that every single player, because of what? The securitization process is really faced with a moral dilemma and... This was simply ignored. No one regarded this. Well, I mentioned the three major uh, economists that have uh, made the assessment of what happened. None, none of them views any of these settings that I described as a, a moral failure. They just simply say, like uh, Robert Schiller, for example, would say, well, people just got caught up in the contagion. You know, that's how he views it. And, or someone like Krugman would say, well, it seemed like the market should be efficiently and uh, working. No one sees anything wrong with all these things. But I'm sure that, that here at this institution that is concerned with, with ethics, that you, that you would all agree that all these different situations are, are really moral dilemmas and they're very serious things. And that you just can't dismiss them and say, well, this is just a case of people engaged in excessive risk and retrospectively. And then, but at the time, it seemed to be the right thing to do. We have a, a principle in, in, in Jewish theological thought, which is called Emancio Dei, that we have to conduct ourselves in our interpersonal relations uh, when, and by emulating the compassion and mercy that God shows in his relations to mankind. And what, one of the basic beliefs is that we, uh, how, how God shows his mercy in his, in his dealings with mankind is that we believe that there are two opposing forces within men there's an evil inclination and a good inclination. The evil inclination tells a person to, to, to not to, to do the right thing, to, to fail morally, and the good inclination says, no, do the right thing. And the struggle between these two forces, and that, it's not an equal struggle, because God says, this is a famous um, dictum in, in the Talmud, uh, that God says to mankind, to says, says uh, just give me a little opening that, which is big enough that, of an eye of a needle, a tiny little opening. If you do that, you show that you want to do the decent thing, you take the initiative, you, you want to do the decent thing, I'll help you. I will make an opening like the wagons and could, could even pass through such a wide opening. So this idea that people basically are decent people, they want to do the right thing, but if they're caught in a situation where either it's so overwhelming that, like, for example, the appraisers, like what... They, they just, it's a matter of their livelihood. If they don't cooperate, and both the bar and the cell, they both say, right, get the right number, put it down. We want you to get the right number. So what we have to do in all these different settings of the workplace is we have to set them up in a way that we put carrots and sticks in place so that we incentivize all the players, all the people in these settings, that they, to tilt them towards virtue and away from transgression. That's really what, we, what the lesson would be. And we have to really change the whole incentive system that exists. And, and as I mentioned, that when a house is on fire, the first order of business is put out the fire. 
first now, we, we, uh, uh, pretty late in the whole, in the whole process, uh, the government is waking up and saying, this whole subprime mortgage market, it really was working in a manner that just was inviting disaster. So they start saying, well, you know what we should do? The people that are originators of mortgages, not just brokers, people, anyone that originates a mortgage should be licensed. And that, that's really very helpful. That's putting a stick in the way of a person that, that say, we don't let you come in if you're incompetent. You don't know what the mortgage law is. We, we also would we require an investigation, fingerprinting, whether you have a criminal record. We don't want criminals to be mortgage brokers, originators, and we don't want people that, are, that don't know what mortgages are all about. That's very helpful. But it was saying that if you want to extend this idea of putting the proper sticks and carrots in place, you go even further. The law should have said that according to some proposals that would, they just didn't go as far as they perhaps should have gone, they say that what happens if a, that a, somebody wants to be a mortgage broker or, or originator, he has to be bonded, meaning that he, that he, has, he, he has a certain amount of money that, that he has to put in the escrow account in case people sue him. They know that if they win the case, they have the money. So if you know you're going to lose your personal wealth if you cheat somebody, that's very important. It's another important stick to put in place. And when the law, the Federal Reserve established in July 2009 that you can't accept applicants that have just stated income. They came to the realization. Why? Because it resulted in a disaster. Not because we made an a priori judgment. Well, this is not acceptable to put someone in such a situation that he doesn't, um, doesn't require the proper documentation. Now, when you, when you come to uh, the credit rating agencies, yes, also there has been <coughs> reforms that say that when the government uh, considers them the nationally recognized statistical rating agencies, that they, when they say when we require certain credit requirements, it's good enough if they, these uh, three uh, nationally recognized statistical uh, rating agencies, they give you a, a rating of AAA or even AA, it's good enough for us that we know that the, that the investment is safe. Like, why do they make them such, give such prominence, catapulting them to such a position that they uh, are, are the surrogates of, of what the SEC should be doing? And, and they, they, they say, this, this is gold. It's a gold standard. Whatever you say, we, we trust. We see that this is not so, that the AAA rating for the subprime mortgages really has, they would explain how they got to that. Even the average investor would see right through it and see the, the transparency. There's a professor by the name of Professor Hunt, written an article, says, you know what, what really we should require of the credit rating agencies? Something that will shock you. He says, and this would be like a Matthew Day, this idea of putting a nice stick in your path. Say, you want to rate products like very esoteric products, like that, that very few people understand collateral debt obligation or synthetic ones, like a synthetic one would be where the uh, securitizer doesn't acquire uh, uh, assets. He just acquires rights of incomes and assets. Like he required, he would have a whole bunch of buying credit fault uh, swaps and have a right to be, to be protected in case of default. So that's, that's called a synthetic CDO. When you don't actually own any assets, you just own entitlement to incomes from certain assets. So, so what he says is that you're rating such instruments that really you don't understand yourself and they're so obscure. You have to be upfront with the public and say, tell the public that we don't really have any kind of track record with this. We don't understand it. You know, in other words, they have to say this is a poor quality rating. I, use, I guess you could use it 
some kind of euphemistic expression. He didn't come up with it, but they, they have to come up front and say that, that, you know, this is not like we are raiding some a municipality that has a track record of 100 years and never were defaulted on a bond. This is something new, a new product, and we're not familiar with it, we're doing the best we can, something like that. And if they don't do that, then we penalize them. All their fees are taken away and there are penalties. That's a real stick. What are you giving ratings when you don't know what you're doing altogether? This is a, 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 but this proposal was not adopted. This, as you can see, this, this is pretty radical. So it seemed to me that there is, from the standpoint of of uh, religious, ethical values, there is a moral failure of many. And what should have been done a long time ago is to set into place all these sticks and carrots. But if we don't view the whole capitalism and free enterprise in terms of morality and just in terms of, well, is the marketplace working well? Are the markets sufficient? So then we only come to this rude awakening that we made a bad, bad mistake in retrospect, after there's a collapse, then we say, well, let's see what we could do to prevent the collapse. But, so I think there's a very big difference between uh, how economists view this and how somebody with a, uh, viewing this with a lens of morality, that if you're, if you're an economist, you say, well, you know, let's put in place uh, uh, automatic stabilizers in case the economy will have a downturn. We should have in place certain things that would automatically prop up the economy, like we have unemployment compensation, we have a progressive income tax that works as an automatic stabilizer. Then realization, well, you know, we should re really have more regulation. That's what the lesson of this big financial meltdown is. And we should have the institutions that are um, very big and they would cause uh, systemic risk to the whole economy. We should perhaps regulate their compensations that they can't have uh, a risky way of, of uh, encouraging risk on the part of people, uh, institutions that have a billion dollars of assets. And, and we should have perhaps a buy-up assets that are sinking and to stabilize the financial markets, that we should be a fund, we should be ready to do that. So these are all just like supplemental ideas to have some more regulation in place before any kind of crisis happens. However, if we look at the whole situation from a moral standpoint, we're there from day one. And we say, we look at this securitization process and we, we add amazement. Wow, this is something that can bring about a tremendous expansion of economic activity all around the world because the capital that the originator of the mortgage uses is always replenished. He lends, he originates a mortgage, he sells it, and then he's able to get a, a, a replenished capital and, he's, and he can do this again and again and again. So what we realize, it has a great advantage, a great, great benefit to society, but at the same time, what is it doing? We realize that there's an atomization of this whole process and the key idea is when people are selling a loan when, and, not, and not keeping it, so there is no incentive for them to do proper disclosure. And then we look at each player and say, yes, each player is going to be beset by a moral dilemma. And we therefore have to set, our duty would be to set up a healthy economic environment that people that should have sticks and incentives, that uh, carrots, sticks and carrots set to tilt people towards virtue and away from transgression. So it's intervention at a very, very early stage. As soon as there's a new product, we start thinking about implications and what will be the moral dilemmas that everyone would face that we need right away to do something and not say, it's working well now, there's great expansion, we just leave it alone, let the marketplace work, let's listen to Alan Greenspan, there can't be a bubble in the housing industry and let's let everything go. And then when things collapse, say, oh no, what happened? 
let's look and see what we could do. And, 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 and actually, this goes on even to this very moment because there's a very prominent economist that one of the very few that predicted this whole financial meltdown, Nouriel Roubini, and he, he predicted it in 2006 at an international monetary meeting among a whole group of economists. And he said there's going to be a monstrous meltdown and everybody didn't believe him. They said they, they, they were in disbelief and he was right. The New York Times is one of the 100 most influential people in the world because of what, what he did. His latest idea is there's another monster that's coming up. And what is it? Because he talks about the concept of a carrying trade currency, that a currency that's used to make, to make investments. You know what it is? It's not the yen anymore. It's the dollar. The dollar is so cheap today in the financial markets that anyone in any other country, what they say, that's what we got to do. We got to get dollars. We, so, so we deal in the foreign exchange market, which is called Forex, which is much bigger than the treasury market and the New York Stock combined. It's a huge market, and what they do is we, they have to they sell short their own currency, which means that they get that they borrow their own currency and they obligate themselves to to pay back. What they do is they, they borrow their own currency and they get dollars, and then they make investments in dollars. So they're hoping that when they have to make good in their contract to make to pay back the borrowed currency that they will have to pay back, that the dollar will depreciate, so that means fewer units of the yen or any other foreign currency will do to make good on paying back the loan. So this is a great investment. He said people are making 15 20% based on this idea. And he says it's a just matter of time. Something has to happen to make the dollar go up. It can't continually go down. Once that happens, there's going to be a panic. There's going to be a stampede. All these people, uh, the foreign investors that sold short their currencies, they are going to quickly cover their positions because the dollar is appreciating and they have to give more units of their currency to make good on the loan that they made of their own currency. And that is going to cause a big, big crash. And he says it's just a matter of time. And the longer we wait, the bigger the monster will be. And he thinks it's going to be even worse than it is now. So really, therefore, there's really no lessons that are learned in terms of morality. If we don't look at that, we just look at risk. What we do is good enough. We, we have new regulations of financial... And we don't think in terms of like Rubini's thought is that it dismissed, will be dismissed and it will not be counted. One final point I'd like to make is that what we have really witnessed in this meltdown, this recession, is, is really a widespread moral failure on the part of many people. Borrowers taking out loans that they knew they could not pay, lenders not making proper disclosures, the securitizer not disclosing what they had to disclose, etc. Triple A ratings not telling us what's behind them, etc. So we're really living in a society of broken promises. And from the standpoint of Jewish law, we have to go really to invigorate the people that we give the responsibility to inculcate moral values. We have to invigorate those people. That is the school system and the parents. We had the parental institution. That there has to be a reinvigoration and to teach children early on the concept of integrity and owning up to responsibility. These are things that really we have to realize that there's a widespread failure. And we could ask, who's watching the watchdog? All the government agencies just fell asleep at the switch. So there is such, it's so widespread that everyone is thinking the same way. No one is thinking in terms of moral failure. And we really need to, uh, to look at basics, to go and to invigorate the institutions and the individuals that, that are, will be um, the teachers of morality, that is, parents and, and, and schools. Uh, thank you very much.